You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Weitz. Greetings and welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast, as the nice man said. My name is Alan Weitz. Today we have a subject that we've been looking forward to for a long time. It's really, really an interesting, exciting subject. The name of it is A Secret History of Leica, How Ernst Light Saved Jewish Lives in Nazi Germany. My guests today are Rabbi Frank Dabber-Smith, who is not only a rabbi, but a soon-to-be doctor of history. Also joining us is Jill Anfield, best known for her work in alternative photographic processes and the author of Jill Anfield's Guide to Alternative Photographic Processes. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the story of Ernst Leitz II, the second-generation owner and director of the Leitz Optical Company, the manufacturer of Leica cameras. Um, who used the means at his disposal to help Jews avoid prosecution, maintain their jobs, and even escape the country in the years leading up to and during the dark years of World War II. Uh, Frank is an expert on the subject, and photographer Jill Enfield will discuss her family's direct relationship with this chapter of Jewish, American, uh, German, and photographic history. Uh, first, a brief lesson. Ernst Leis the first who was born in 1843 and passed away in 1920, founded the original Lights Optical Company in 1869, and they were manufactured precision microscopes and scientific instruments. His son, Ernst Lights II, took over afterwards. In 1925, the first 35-millimeter camera, the Leica One, was introduced at the Leipzig Spring Fair, designed by Oscar Barnack. It was a total break from larger, heavier, and slower cameras of the day, made use of the same 35 roll film used, to, use, used in motion picture uh, cameras. Uh, and it was far better for low light shooting and featured a form factor and design that is still being copied to this very day, 90 years after it was first introduced. Before we get into the heart of the story, it's worth mentioning that Ernst Leitz I was an extremely socially conscious businessman. Frank, can you give us a little background? Because I was reading some of your earlier notes and what this man did was really progressive for the time. Mm. He was a, a very paternalistic businessman. Uh, the term paterfamilias. Everybody who worked in the factory, all of his agents were like part of his family. And there was a company tradition, uh, not unknown in other places in Germany, where the owner of the company liked nothing better than to walk around at 7 a.m., and talk to each and every employee. How you know? How's your family? How's so and so? Do you need to borrow any money? A sense of of being included. And he had a sign outside of his office door that said, "Enter without knocking." And so there was this kind of accessibility. The family was long involved in liberal politics, and so that's p another piece of the puzzle. I see. In 1885, he introduced health insurance to his employees. And in 1889, a pension scheme and funds for building new homes for employees, sort of mortgage loans, I guess, is what yeah. it was. I mean, there are other companies doing that in Germany. It's not unique. But he, he also did something that was kind of interesting. Runaway inflation uh, became kind of nutty in uh, 1923, 1924 with providing food at, with uh, some kind of coupons. Could you tell us yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah. So runaway inflation, you know, this, the legends go that you'd be paid in the morning and, you know, a wheelbarrow of cash and it would be worth, you'd need five wheelbarrows of it to buy a bit of food in the afternoon. So he was an exporter. 
So he had foreign currencies, was able to make arrangements to bring in food and arrangements with local grocers, and he printed his own money or <laughs> currency during this very strange time. And, and, and they had their own sort of mini economy that was stable within the chaos. Um, there are other companies that did this as well. But I think what sets lights apart is all of these practices coming together and 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 uh, being enlarged upon uh, during the war. So I think this is interesting because we're setting the stage. You know, helping people during the war and the Nazi period doesn't come out of nowhere. That's yeah. That's There's what I find interesting about it. A long context, a long history of regarding people, regardless of faith or ethnicity or anything as part of a larger family. Yeah, I think it's, well, it's important to note that, that Ernst Leitz, Leitz family was not Jewish. That's right. The name could be construed as such, but they weren't. So yeah. that, that is an interesting thing. As the Leica camera was growing in reputation for what it was, which was an amazingly uh, 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 amazing photographic tool with the best lenses you can buy, it was being adopted by Life Magazine, National Geo, all the big publications, all the big journalists, street shooters of the time. At the same time, it was also catching the notice uh, uh, of the Nazi party and part of the Third Reich. It became incorporated into the propaganda machine because, again, this was a homegrown tool. It was the best that was out there, and the Germans were busy promoting the, the supreme society. And uh, Goebbels himself was active about this. Can you tell us a little bit about that part of it? The timing was brilliant in the 20s, and we see the rise of picture magazines, you know, Life magazine and Picture Post in England, they were preceded by the German ones in Munich and Berlin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we see this cultural shift where small cameras, they can go anywhere. They could, you know, exposés, gossip, this sort of eyewitness hidden. They're, they do well in low light. And, you know, the, the, the whole candid business. Eric Salomon was a great Jewish photographer who was murdered at Auschwitz. He used a Leica for part of his work. Other photographers get on board. Uh, and so we see the photograph in these magazines is, a, is replacing the need for immediate experience. So this vicarious stuff. So the culture is so shifting. So the Nazis, you know, they're into this. They're very sophisticated about visual culture. And so they... Uh, they adopt the Leica and make tremendous use of photography to get across their propaganda or, or whatever it is they wanted to do. So the Nazis are taking these ancient, well, say medieval stereotypes about Jews and race and conspiracy and inferior, you know, inferior and disease and all that and, and photographing these themes which were before in paintings and prints and so on. And so photography is getting really important, but at the same time, people are not so critical of photographs because they think, well, it's a photograph. It's true. Right. So the Nazis are masters of this kind of thing. Well, if you ever saw the film Olympiad, then that's just a celebration of, of that whole culture. And it's brilliant. It's an amazing thing to watch. Visually, it still holds up, what, 70, 80 stunning. years after yeah. the case. Lenny Riefenstahl, yep. uh, Triumph of the Will is yep. a stunning film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. The Leica was used by the German uh, forces during uh, uh, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and it was also used by Jews on the inside. So that one same camera system was used to document from both sides what was actually going on there. Uh, really interesting stuff. Now, 
while all this propaganda and using of, of the like it was being incorporated into the, the Nazi war machine, there were other things going on back at the home office. And why don't you give us a little taste about that? Sure. So the Nazis take power in early 33. And some of the first things they do are designed to marginalize, isolate Jews economically. So Jews in all sorts of work are losing their jobs. There are economic boycotts, so businesses are being lost. So the idea is to economically marginalize them. Okay? And, and the rest of the what we call the Holocaust grows, in, in, but it all starts with isolating somebody. And when you've isolated somebody, then incidentally, you can make all the propaganda and because don't, people don't have relationships so much with, say, the victim, then your racist propaganda has more chance to succeed. So young people uh, are having trouble in school. Businesses are going bankrupt. And these people know of Ernst Leitz's reputation as somebody who's caring, and they come to the factory. Also, he had many Jewish friends, and they come to the factory uh, asking for uh, apprenticeships for their children. And so we see this immediately. And at the time, for Jews to gain apprenticeships like this was extremely rare. Many Jews are really flailing. And Ernst Leitz, without hesitation, is taking on young men, in some cases young women, uh, short-term or long-term apprenticeships. And it's case by case. So he's trying to, to help in a way that's appropriate for each person's circumstances. And um, and there are many examples that uh, are in that I've discovered and 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 have probed in terms of my research, and there's some amazing stories of people coming to this country, coming to Britain, and then also having their passage paid for to get here, and having jobs here with Ernst Lights, you know, up on Fifth Avenue and other places. Uh, and, and, and it wasn't easy for Jews to get jobs, good jobs with Kodak or, and blue chip American com companies during this period. But a German company, their agency is, is, is becoming a, a, a source of sustenance for refugees. Which brings us to Jill Enfield. Yes. <laughs> Those of you are wondering, okay, well, what's Jill doing there? He's been waiting uh, patiently. <laughs> Jill, can you tell us? <laughs> you have an interesting story. Your connection to this is really wonderful. Could you tell us a bit about this? I can. Um, so my grandfather um, owned with his brother uh, a store in Frankfurt, and they had five stores all together. And it was the house of gifts. But their main uh, stay in the store was really Leica cameras. And uh, so cameras, photographic equipment, radios, uh, technology. The B, it was the B&H of its time. It was the B&H of its time. <laughs> that's, that's actually... No. <laughs> Five little superstores. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that. Okay. <laughs> so they, um, they made plans with uh, Ernst Lights II to uh, do a trade. Uh, you know, a lot of German Jews, the reason why 
this was, uh, the Holocaust was, or one of the reasons, of course, there are many reasons, so successful is German Jews were not religious. They were very secular, mm -hmm. a lot of them, uh, my family being one. And they felt that they were German first, Jews second. That was a very common notion at the time. Yeah. Yes. And so they didn't want to leave. They were successful. They had a wonderful life in Germany, and they didn't want to leave their homeland. One, one of the reasons a lot of people wonder why, why more Jews didn't try to escape is because that was a very common assumption yeah. that German Jews in general were very proud of their German heritage. Very um, proud. And, and their attitude was they couldn't do something like that to us and, and because they were so embedded in society mm -hmm. and every single aspect of it. And I think, and that's one of the reasons why a lot, a lot of people did not leave right. when they had an opportunity because they said it couldn't possibly it happen. It couldn't happen to us. We there have these businesses where, you know, uh, high society and it's not going to happen. Right. And we're helping the economy. So why would they do anything to us? And then Kristallnacht happened. But they, uh, my grandfather, um, Hans Ehrenfeld, uh, later Henry Enfield, went uh, to speak to Ernst, and um, and they made arrangements so that they could do a, a trade. They, you know, they couldn't bring money out, but if they uh, they had uh, leather goods and uh, and paintings and other things jewelry at the store, they could do a swap. So they could give him the things from the store, and then when they got to America, they could then have that, the goods, and open up a store. But then Kristallnacht happened, and then they didn't have anything. So uh, the Lights family arranged for um, Alfred Turk to write a letter uh, and Alfred Turk is? He was the, Or was? What was he, the COO? No, he was like the, the sales account. manager. He was one of the directors of, of Lights. Okay. And he was um, very, very much responsible for the success of the early marketing campaigns for the Leica. Okay, all right. So he, he was like his almost second in command, I think. He was pretty Up close there. to him. Top yeah. five. Top five. So he um, he wrote my family a letter, which uh, then got into the hands of the Gestapo. And oh, you should explain the letter, the contents of the letter. Yeah, it's uh, it was really cool actually, <laughs> and I did not know about it. Tell us. So <laughs> it it we said, won't tell anybody. It'll be our secret. Okay, I promise. Good, good. I won't go, yeah, I won't go out of this room. Trouble can happen. You know, you never know. <laughs> so the letter was an introduction pretty much saying Henry Enfield or Hans Ehrenfeld is a wonderful person. He can have anything that we have to offer that can go into a store without him having to pay you first. And, and give him support and business connections. And it was addressed to the American Agency of Lights and saying what an honorable and uh, customer he's been to us here in Germany. And totally trustworthy, and it doesn't matter that he doesn't have the money. He needs to open up a store and support his family. Now, a letter of that caliber falling mm -hmm. into the wrong hands could have been very, very dangerous for the entire Light's family and anybody else associated with that. That's pretty safe to assume. Yes, and it was because they took Alfred Turk and they told 
uh, the Lights family that they had to fire him. And so what happened was they fired him because they needed to think about their store, but they supported him for the rest of his life with his same income. Awesome. It was really something. Yeah, you see, there were there were Gestapo spies in the factory. The Nazis knew full well that Lights was helping a, a, a lot of people in different ways. And we have to remember that up until, well, yeah, up until the war, the Nazis were basically, they wanted Jews to emigrate. Okay, so the, the overall goal does not is not opposed, but the Nazis wanted to fleece the Jews and make it an incredibly difficult proposition. And so Lights, in opposition to the Nazis, is being totally humane and helpful and supportive. And this is what really robbed, uh, rubbed the noses of the Nazis the wrong way. So Alfred Turk was arrested. There was a huge conference in Berlin. And we have to remember that the Nazi regime was bitterly divided between the ideologues and the pragmatists. And Leitz had a very well-placed pragmatist. Uh, and this man, he was, this man was a Nazi. His father had had a factory in Wetzlar. Uh, it's the sort of the leather um, belts in terms that were used, you know, in, in in transmitting power to machinery. Well, the technology changed really rapidly, and this man went bankrupt. So even though they didn't agree politically, Lights really helped this man out in Wetzlar, and and you know bought his factory and everything at a fair price. Didn't try and take advantage. So his son, who became this Nazi in the in the economics ministry, the loyalty and that personal relationship transcended the politics. So one of the lessons of this is personal relationships are incredibly important and having a broad network of contacts and relationships. So the Nazis knew full well what Leitz was doing. They had this big conference, and Alfred Turk was the fall guy. But as Jill just said, they looked after him, and at the end of the war, he went back to work for lights. So yeah. they made sure he was taken care of. Do you have any other specific examples of how he obtained visas and aided other people? It was not only difficult to get out of Germany, but it was profoundly difficult to get into America and Britain. You know, Roosevelt uh, and the officials were very reluctant to get too involved because of the anti-Semitism here. You know, they didn't want to be accused of, you know, getting involved and having too many Jews coming and getting into a Jew war and all that kind of stuff. So there were quotas, very strict quotas here for admitting refugees. And what's really strange is those quotas were never actually reached. They didn't even fulfill the full quotas to get into this country. So it was very difficult getting, getting here. And, um, and as Jill said, Kristallnacht was a real marker. Uh, there was there was no no denying really after that if one was at all sane that one could remain in Germany. Well, they took all of the uh, business owners to Buchenwald after Kristallnacht from Frankfurt. Right. And my grandfather and his brother were two of the people that went, and they kept them in a separate area. It was called Block Five. And all they did all day was sign over everything they owned, everything. 
so that they would end up with nothing. My grandfather and his brother got visas to come to the United States, um, but they had to, when they were let out of Bougainville, they had to walk those five miles or eight miles or whatever in December to the train station. And then there would be Jewish women at the train station that would feed them and give them a ticket to get back to Frankfurt. But, um, you know, they were not young men. And, I mean, they weren't that old, but they were, you know, they weren't 20, and a lot of them were old, and it was arduous for them to do, to go through that. And a lot of them were very sick. And um, while my grandfather was very sick and my my great-uncle was... Uh, Gustav really suffered and had it, physical and emotional breakdowns from that experience and was never himself again. No, he never worked again. Yeah. It was awful. So um, the young people and older people did receive help in uh, obtaining visas. So, for example, Henri Dumur, who was the managing director and Ernst Leitz II's first cousin, he was a Swiss citizen, he would accompany uh, the individuals to the consulate. He would give them advice and help and support. Um, but also coming into this country, into America, uh, the people needed guarantors. And that was very tricky. So the money had to originate in America. So there were various uh, uh, ways that lights may have been involved in, in helping with that. Do you have any specific numbers about how many individuals or families or groups were sure. actually benefited from uh, sure. the Lights family? There are several ways that they were helped. One is the category we're talking about, which is uh, um, training of different kinds, then passage supported to get to America and or letters of recommendation. There were people who remained in Germany, such as half-Jews, uh, and, and some fared very badly and some were okay. But Lights helped them by giving them long-term employment till the very end in, in, in the factory. There were political friends who lost their pensions, who were persecuted. Lights helped them. One example is the uh, first president of the Bundesrepublik uh, of Germany after the war, Theodor Heuss. He was given copyright, uh, advertising copywriting assignments for radio adverts and so on by lights so that he and his wife could survive. Okay, the total number of all these individuals, I reckon, is about 85. So we're not dealing with vast numbers. We're not dealing with the Schindler sort of thing, you know, 1,000 or 2,000 people. We're dealing with a man and his company who were very established in a small town uh, who had really no Jewish employees before all this started. And little by little, different uh, different uh, people in vulnerable situations are, are coming, and they're helped in individual ways. But we're looking all the way through, uh, and depending on what was going on historically, the problems and the help was appropriate because circumstances, issues change. So it's about it's it's it could be more, there could be more. But this is this is the number that 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 we have good evidence, either documentary and or eyewitness uh, uh, stuff. 
I had a conversation with uh, Jim Maga, who's a, a Leica historian, about 30 years ago before this story, before this, a lot of this information was, was generally available. He had it because he's a Leica buff. And um, he shared me some information, essentially told me the roundabout story about how Leica basically saved a lot of Jews. And he also said that there was something, if you look at the trade publications of, of the 40s and 50s, there was quite often mention of the refugee problem, which was really about if you were a Leica dealer, it took a lot to become a Leica dealer. They didn't give a, a license to anybody to sell them. And the pricing was not flexible on these cameras. And to this day, that holds very, very true. So while Leica was enforcing all of these rules and regulations for their dealers, they were also giving a lot of these Jewish families and cameras to take here. From what I understand, they trained at the Leica factory a lot of Jews in camera repair and how to use them and gave them camera equipment, Leica cameras and bodies, lenses, and sent them across the Atlantic to the U.S. And many of them would use these very same cameras to sell off to get a few dollars to start something new here. And these cameras are obviously being, quote unquote, dumped at below approved prices, which really got the goat of many dealers. And they called it the refugee problem. And they had an issue with the company because here we are being held to one specific rigid set of pricing standards. At the same time, we have these people coming in off the boats and they're underselling us to points where we could just never compete against them. Mm. So it, it, I think it's also interesting that Lights went that far that to really upset his own dealers, his own dealer network, in order to help a lot of people. Uh, it's really interesting uh, nuance to the story, which I, I, I haven't heard about. I would love to be able to find some primary source material, uh, maybe in a trade publication involving... Uh, but let's not forget we're not dealing with mass numbers here. Oh, yeah. You know, we're yeah. not dealing with thousands of cameras com coming over. But in the, in the established American dealer's defense, I mean, this is the depression. You know, it's not like you're – it's not like B&H today where, you know, you can sell, I don't know, 50 Leicas a, a day or a week or something. No, actually before lunch we sell 50. 50 <laughs> to 60. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, boy, that would be nice. Well, if, if I had more, if I had more available balance in my credit card, I'd add to it. But, uh, but so, so there, there's probably uh, my guess is this is a reaction to some individual cases, and and you know the market is poor, people are very worried. Uh, there's also the dealers may be getting flack at the time for working with a German company. You know, the anti-German sort of hysteria, well, not less than hysteria, but but uh, uh, maybe on the rise. So, you know, people are in a really difficult position, and some of these guys come over and, uh, and, and are dumping a couple of cameras here and there. It's tough. It's really tough. And... Uh, you know, nothing. Nothing is black and white. Nothing is clear cut. There's always conflicting interests. How did Lights himself avoid prosecution and trouble with the uh, regime? Because they, they they didn't have much of a sense of humor. <laughs> uh, I would, yeah. So the question is, how did he get away with it? It was they needed him. Yeah, there was a tightrope act, and as Jill is saying, they okay. First of all, the Nazis needed him. Why? He made very 
very sophisticated navigation devices for military equipment. So we're talking collimation stuff for artillery. We're talking navigation gear for V1 and V2 rockets. Okay, and it's not like the situation where the government throws a blueprint at you and says, make this screw, send the screw off to so-and-so, and they'll put it together. It's not even a situation where the government throws you a blueprint and says, make this gun. What Lights is making are in-house designed, nobody else has designed this stuff, and the experts, the team to build this stuff is in-house. So Lights is a man who totally is loved by his employees. And if the government got rid of Lights, the old man, the whole thing is at risk of falling apart. So he walked that tightrope. That's, that's the first way. The second way is he was under tremendous pressure to join the Nazi party because it was a thorn in the Nazi side that a company that was so strategic uh, that the owner was not a Nazi. And so he started getting threats pretty early on about this. And... Um, Finally, he gave in uh, in 1941 when the Nazis were really at their height militarily, so before the big defeats in Russia and all the rest of it. And so his friend, who was the mayor of Wetzlar, said, look, Ernst, you have, you have to join the party. And if you don't, you're very much at risk of them putting their people in charge of the company. So, you know, here's a 70-year-old man reluctantly joins the party. So that's one, one way to stave them off. But I think the real reason was, was uh, manufacturing these, these, these armaments. And they could have really just controlled them if they really wanted to. It's, 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 it's amazing how these well, things actually work. you yeah. know, even the Nazis were, they, you know, we've kind of bought their propaganda that they were absolutely invincible. The economy was was in very painfully difficult shape pretty much all the way through. And, you know, after a certain point, the militarily was going really bad. You know, the not, even the Nazis had a huge sense of public relations. I mean, there's one ex very famous example of, of the women in Berlin. I don't know if you guys know this story, but... Uh, this We're is, about to learn it. Yeah, this is an early 42, <laughs> the Rosenstrasse women... And these Jewish men married to non-Jewish women with half-Jewish children, the husbands, the partners, the children are picked up by the Nazis in this big aktion or action, and they're about to be sent off, you know, to be murdered. And the non-Jewish wives, about a thousand of them, start protesting in front of the prison where these men are. It's in the heart of Berlin. You can see the site today. And they're protesting day and night. And they, you know, the SS have their machine guns. And the whole thing is called off. 25 men who've been sent to Auschwitz already are brought back and released. And the Nazis were afraid of the bad PR that the women would talk. By this time, there are, you know, a couple of bombings of Berlin. The Nazis are not doing well militarily. And, and they're very afraid. So they were not omnipotent. And, and for many reasons, they had to be pragmatic. 
So I think our our view of the regime as this single-minded monolith is 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 really erroneous. And and so we need to look at the nuance much much more. And the recent historiography of this is is this is coming out. Uh, for anyone really interested in this aspect of the economy, uh, uh, the recent book by Adam Tooze, T-O-O-Z-E, or Z-E in America. <laughs> it's too long in London. Uh, the Wages of Destruction is the single recent book about the Nazi economy and the constraints they faced. And, 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 and I can place Ernst Leitz into this context. Interesting. What what about Ernst Leitz's daughter? Um, she she had her own little episode of this yeah. uh, uh, adventure. Could you tell us about that? Because it wasn't it wasn't as pretty for her. No, Elsie is Ernst's daughter. She was born in 1903. Uh, she has two younger brothers, Ernst the Third and Ludwig. Uh, Ernst the Second's wife, the children's mother, dies young. He's left with his three children. Uh, in 1910, 1911. She and her father are extremely close. And um, she is what we would call sort of an impulsive, compulsive, uh, bleeding heart do-gooder. <laughs> and, uh, and she had uh, Jewish friends uh, she was in law school with one later uh, went on to be the state controller of the of, of Israel, uh, Nebensal, and they kept in touch for many many years. Okay, 1943, spring 43 in Wetzlar, the Nazis are cracking down on the Jewish partners in uh, spouses in in mixed marriages. I have to remember that the the mixed marriage rate was somewhere between 33 and 50 percent in the early part of the 20th century. Um, so uh, for a long time, these Jews in mixed marriages had a kind of protected status. It varied in terms of locality. Uh, but there's a woman named Hedvig Palm, P-A-L-M, who used to work for the company. And she and her husband are, are opticians. They sell eyeglasses in Betzlar. Uh, she's about to be deported to the East. And Elsie gets wind of this, uh, and she leaps into action, really sort of without even thinking. She finds some Swiss francs, and the idea is that, is that Hedvig and this other woman will somehow get to Switzerland and sneak across the border near Schaffhausen, where IWC watches are made. And... Uh, Incidentally, the IWC was a favorite uh, of refugees as well. You know, like a camera's watch is a good way to get money out. Ah. So the whole thing unravels. So they first go to Ernst's sister in Munich. They lie low for six weeks. Elsie's not with them. She's too high profile. So Hedvig is with this other woman who turns out to be a Gestapo spy. And they try to get across the border and a milk a dairyman gets very suspicious and they're like trying to bribe him. And you know, these two middle-aged women, it's the original amateur hour and they're trying to get across and, and the whole thing unravels. Well, they're arrested. Elsie's implicated. Her father is implicated. And I have records of the interrogations and all the rest of it. So again, almost like a Turk, Alfred Turk situation, Elsie is the fall guy or the fall girl 
She's incarcerated for three months in Frankfurt. The jail is still there if you ever want to have a tour of it. And, uh, and her father bribes the Gestapo with millions uh, to try and get her out, and he gets her out. And they're harassed by, or harassed by, the, <laughs> by the Gestapo until, until the end of the war. She also, I know fairly controversially, the factory, Ernst Leitz, they employ slave laborers. Now, we have to remember during this time in Germany, any company of any size had slave labor. So we're talking 25 to 30% of the total workforce, various sorts of slaves. Um, so Eastern European girls, Ukrainian girls, Elsie is in their camp almost every day trying to better conditions. So that's the other thing that Gestapo were really angry about because that was very tightly regulated. Her father is taking meals with these women every day. And so he even tried, and I found the architectural prints, he tried to get a beer bar in there for these girls. Uh, the Nazis approved the construction plans, but not the license for the alcohol. He really pushed the envelope, the whole family. He pushed did. the envelope, and I think, uh, you know, there's a sense of, 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 you know, what do I have to live for? Bottom line, my values of humanitarianism are more important than anything else. How did it all work out post where you have all of these people who were helped out of the country? How many of them stayed with the company? What about uh, the, uh, uh, Ernst Leitz himself? Now, he passed away in 1956 Correct. or something like that. Um, and also there was – they did not make a big deal about this. In fact, they were went out of their way to keep it kind of under wraps, not because they were, you know, were ashamed of it, but they just didn't want – what I'm gathering, they didn't want any kind of – hero status being thrown on them, or unusual, undue spotlights, I guess. Sure. Right. This is a complex question. Um, there were people who stayed with Leica. Jill's family in Florida had they, a... They brought the first Leicas to Miami Beach. That's where they opened up their camera store. Yeah, and they kept on. They were great right. traders. Uh, some of the employees had long, long careers with lights. There were a few people that left that, that, that formed their own very successful businesses. Charles Brinkman was one, for example. His descendants are here in New York City, and I've met with them. Uh, after the war, we have a report from this uh, British uh, intelligence operation. You know, They went into all the factories to see whatever they could steal, basically. Victor's justice in that sense. There's a report that the lights factory is well run, discipline is good, everybody's in a good mood, and they go on to make some of the greatest products in their history, the M3 in 1954. Um, they were very, uh, they weren't bombed, only there was one bombing raid. I went to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. and found all the papers related to that bombing raid, the American bombing raid, uh, only blew out some windows. Uh, it was, it was, there was bad weather. Um, and uh, so they, they were pretty much intact uh, at the end of the war. Lights had to, himself, had to be denazified. And I have all the papers from that court trial. Uh, a huge source of uh, material for us is the, are the letters that accompanied this. We have to be very careful as historians of these letters because even the worst Nazis would promise favors to Jews at the end in return for letters like they called them Persil, China, 
parcel whitewash letters. And we have to be very careful of that. But that was a huge source for us, and we would follow up on those. But in the case of the Lights family, they they had documentation going back pre-war. It's not absolutely. like they would jump into absolutely. the last minute. So he went to this court absolutely unanimously, you know, don't worry, you're a nominal party member. Don't worry, we understand completely why you had to join. Okay, that was fine. And Elsie was very, very engaged in reconciliation efforts, especially through the arts and music, France, other places. Uh, she was very close with Conrad Adenauer uh, in terms of reconciliation with, with the rest of the world. Um, they religiously were Protestants, the, the say little and do much variety. Very low-key, not regular churchgoers, but very spiritual, very caring, very loving. Really the best stuff, the best ethics of Christianity. And uh, that's one reason why they didn't talk about it. Another reason is they're in a small town. People are stuck with each other. <laughs> so not only the richest people in town, but to lord over everybody and say, we were good and you were not. You know, when you know somebody joined the Gestapo under duress or somebody else joined the SS, you know, you don't go lording this stuff around because otherwise you start, you know, you're killing each other. So people had to live with each other somehow. And and you know, they they weren't their their attitude is we wish we could have done more. So and even today. You know, I'm very close with the grandson of Ernst Lights, and, and Jill and her daughter have, have met him. Knut. He's wonderful. Oh, he's such a lovely, lovely man. What, could you, what else can you add? Because obviously you have a, a huge family history with this, and, and, and you must have other stories. What could you add to this, another dimension to it, from, from what you saw through your family, through your father and grandfather? You know, it's, um, it, was ve- it was very interesting. They didn't really talk about it about the Lights family and the help, and they didn't want to talk about the war. We didn't know a lot about it until Frank called me. Why? Because uh, Germans are weird. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and Jews are strange, too. <laughs> yeah. I Only mean, more you know. so. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> they just they didn't talk about it. And to find out later how much, you know, Frank said... They, they didn't just help with giving the letter. And then we found out that Ernst also had written a letter, which really they kept hidden and really could have gotten all of them in trouble. And then, you know, my dad, they got my dad a job in London. They trained my uncle in, in the factory in uh, Wetzlar. And my cousin was given a job in New York at the Fifth Avenue place. So, I mean, they couldn't do enough for my family. And knowing that, the second I met Canute, I just hugged him. I mean, you just, you know, he's family. Right. You know, and right. Frank is family. And it's it's just, it's such a wonderful story. And And I don't know why they wouldn't share that with us. I mean, I have a video where they're all sitting, all the cousins and my father and his brother are sitting, and then all of us, you know, from my generation are sitting trying to get them. We're, it's like pulling, you know, just 
molasses. You know, it, it's just, it was so difficult, and we're videotaping and asking them questions, and my uncle's running off because my father answered something that he didn't like, and my cousin doesn't remember anything. And, <laughs> you know, it just, it, it's really just... It sounds like the typical family gathering. Right, yeah. <laughs> Things have never changed, you know, but it's uh, it's really something that um, for me and I think for my family as well, um, it's just brought so much to light about how they could make it here and, you know, and how they could actually make a life for all of us after going through such a horrible situation. Amazing, amazing story. This, and I'm sure we can go on for hours because I know that just looking at your earlier notes, there are so many names and so many directions. But this is a really, really great start. Um, I'd really like to thank Rabbi Frank Dabba Smith for coming here today. When you do get your doctorate, we expect a large kiddish with hot, <laughs> hot and cold with a sushi bar. Okay, we're holding a sushi, you sushi bar. Yes. Yeah. Listen, if you can smuggle some pastrami into into the UK, actually, just before if we have five seconds, just to say we had a bit of a reunion a while ago at the Second Ave Deli with some of the lights descendants. Uh, the refugees' descendants, and Jill was there. We had the most amazing time sharing stories. So even in New York, there's this tiny little odd hook community of, of Lights refugees <laughs> to this very day, all having pastrami and, and rum. <laughs> uh, Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank um, you. Jill has a three-month exhibition coming up at Ellis Island scheduled for May of 2017. It's going to include 30 wet plate collodion portraits of people who have come to the U.S. from foreign lands since 1960. So we're looking forward to that. Thank, um, you. thank you, Jill. Thank you, Frank. Thank you to John, our producer, Jason, our engineer. For more photo news and reviews, please check bh.com backslash explorer. Follow us on Twitter at bhphotovideo and email your questions to podcast at bhphoto.com. My name is Alan Weintz. Thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs>